This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs. And the small dogs, who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org slash skills. The Bowery Boys, episode 76, The Woolworth Building. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hello there and welcome to the Bowery Boys. My name is Tom Myers. And I'm Greg Young. Thanks for joining us for another episode. Tom, welcome back. It's so good to be back right here in our little cozy recording studio. Tom was away in Europe for three weeks uh, and doing some work for Eurocheapo.com, our sponsor. I was uh, visiting hotels in Paris and Riga, Latvia, as well as uh, spending a week in St. Petersburg, Russia. So it was an interesting time to get away, you know, going to Russia during the winter. And so you're back. And what we're talking about today is a building that was heavily influenced by European architecture. Mm -hmm. Good transition, Greg. Shut up. So the Woolworth (laughs) building is one of the jewels of New York skyline. It is one of the most beautiful buildings and one of the oldest skyscrapers in New York City. Many of us, of course, remember the store, Woolworths, but how many of us really know the story behind the building? And the architect who built it, uh, one of New York's premier architects, actually, especially at the turn of the century, will tell you what makes this building so special and will also tell you how the Woolworth building relates to the clothes you wore to the gym this morning. Ooh, intriguing. Sit back and try to figure out that riddle as we get on top of the history of the Woolworth building. So, Greg, before we get to Mr. Woolworth and his building, maybe you could situate the building in general. You got it. The Woolworth building is on Broadway between Park Place and Barclay Street. That is across the street from City Hall. It is 792 feet. I'll be saying that number probably two or three times in this podcast. 792. 792 feet or 241 meters if you're European. Oh, yes. And I had forgotten that. <laughs> it was the tallest building in the world for 17 years from 1913 to 1930. It is a building of an extraordinary importance for New York City, though it's funny because you don't really, we don't really interact with it. You can't even go in the lobby. No, in fact, I went down there yesterday after work. I decided I'm going to go in, get in. No, you get down there, try to walk in, and there's a sign that says, no tourists beyond this point. And I thought, well, maybe I'm not a tourist, you know, because... <laughs> You're a Bowery boy. But I'm they- a Bowery boy, but that doesn't really go very far. It doesn't get me into the Woolworth building. No. Before kind of launching into why someone would want to build tallest building in New York, I thought I would actually give us a little history 
of who the title bearers were of tallest building of New York up until this time and the six buildings that have actually held this title. So for the longest time from the mid-19th century, almost to the end of the 19th century, the sort of the marker on the New York skyline has actually been the Trinity Church. Mm-hmm. The spire of, of Trinity Church is 284 feet. Now, I want to put this all into perspective. So map this out in your head if you have a blue pencil in, the, in your mind here. The 284 feet, that's where Trinity Church is. Yeah. Got it. The Empire State Building, which of course won't be built for many, many years and won't figure into the story, but just to put it all into perspective, is 1,250 feet. So about five trinities. About about five trinities, okay. yes. So believe it or not, nothing touched the trinity for almost 45 years, from 1846 when it was built to 1890. It was the tallest building. But a lot of things happened in this period of time to ignite the skyscraper boom. Part of it is, of course, things that we've talked about on podcast pasts, um, all the innovations in steel construction, these inventions like the elevator break, all these massive design revolutions. <laughs> the invention of the elevator. The, well, the elevator and the elevator break, <laughs> correct? One without the other wouldn't work very well. The mass production of steel. And in the 1880s, the word skyscraper was sort of first used in this sort of modern context to describe these buildings. Additionally, you had everyone moving to the city and vast populations moving to these large urban centers. So you literally just needed places to put people. So there was this rush then to to be the person who could build the largest building in New York because there was a lot of attention focused on this. It was a lot of American pride built around this, that we are a modern industrial nation and we can build these beautiful buildings and they can hold more people than ever before. Mm. So one group that really gets into to this, like, we got to build a big building, are newspaper editors. So up on Park Row, you have different editors making buildings at different sizes that are larger and larger, none of them really getting to the top of Trinity Spire until 1890. Finally, the first building in New York that broke that altitude, that would be called the World Building. It would be the home of Joseph Pulitzer's New York World Mm -hmm. newspaper. It would sometimes be called the Pulitzer Building. It was designed by George Post, the guy who designed the New York Stock Exchange, Uh incidentally. It would be 309 feet. This was a kind of a significant deal to sort of break this Trinity Church line. Um, An article from Scribner's Magazine at the time actually said, the inner prize of business has surpassed the aspiration of religion. So this was so no small really, feat. Yeah, yes. I'm reading a lot into it. There weren't any zoning regulations or anything back, like that. Back in the day, because they just they didn't even know what to expect, what the city was going to look like. Now, this building would later be demolished for a traffic ramp onto the Brooklyn Bridge. So you can't see this building. But it was number one tallest until 1894, when another building by the name of the Manhattan Life Insurance Building was built at 64 Broadway. It was 40 feet higher than the World Building. It kind of looked like a cute little building. It was a lantern on the top of it, two little towers with an iron bridge at the very top of it. Um, Looked kind of nice. It was demolished in 1930. Now, the first one of our buildings that we're going to talk about that still is standing was built in 1899, and that was the Park Row Building. That's on... 
15 Park Row. Which is also just across from City Hall, just to the east. Uh, to the east, as in the, the Woolworth Building would be built to the west side. So it was eventually owned by August Belmont Jr., who, of course, built the IRT subway. Uh, so that, that building is still there, and it held the title for about nine years until 1908. This building actually kind of plays into the Woolworth story a little bit, because this was called the Singer Building. Uh-huh. It was at 149 Broadway, and now we're talking... We're talking the Singer Sewing Machines? Yeah, absolutely. So the Park Row building was 386 feet. The Singer Building, bam, 612 feet. This not this sort of like knocked it right in the air. Significantly taller. Uh, and as you said, it hosts the Singer Sewing Manufacturing Company. This incredibly weird looking building. It was all red bricks. Imagine like one the tallest building in New York, all red bricks, and it was also made of some blue stone. The first 10 stories filled the entire block. And then the remaining 31 stories were this tiny, thin little tower. It was almost like a a minaret, almost, if you will, all the way up to 612 feet. It was a very very odd-looking building. I'll I'll have to put some pictures up on the blog. Well, this building was, of course, then demolished later and is now... Probably wasn't that hard. (laughs) Just pushed it over. It's now One Liberty Plaza. So the race was on. The race was on. So the Singer building, that was 1908. So we're finally to the building that is the tallest building in New York when we start our story here with the Woolworth. And that building is still with us. It's still a classic. In 1909, the Metropolitan Life Insurance Tower at 1 Madison Avenue. Which is right at Madison Square Park at 23rd Street. Yes. It is that Venetian-style clock tower building. 700 feet, 52 floors. They wanted the world to know that they were the biggest insurance company in the world. There was a lot of publicity around this building, a lot of publicity around them beating the Singer building, which was also built because it was a company that wanted to say, hey, look, we're this big, amazing company, and we have all this money, and we just built this big building in New York. Right, it was a status symbol. Exactly. So what you're, if you're seeing the underlying theme here of all of these buildings are being created, not just to house their own employees, not just to house other people's employees, not just to look pretty, but to make a commercial statement as if their product is sort of embodied in this building. We've come across the same theme in the Chrysler building, which is like the epitome of a product turned into a building. So this competitive nature is picked up by the star of our show this evening, the CEO of a vast retelling empire. You must be talking about Frank Winfield Woolworth. Winfield? Yes. I, I, wow. F. Interesting. W. Woolworth. F. Frank, w. Frank Winfield. Yes. Okay. He was a self-made man, and he was born into really, you know, very humble circumstances up way in northern New York State in 1852 to a poor farming family. They were potato farmers. Another rags to riches tale. This was, in fact, yeah, the era of the self-made man. So Frank lived on the farm in upstate New York uh, throughout his youth. As a young man from 1873, when he was 21 years old, until 1879, he worked at a general store. So this is where he picked up a little bit of his bug for yeah, serving well, he, the... He wanted a job, and he wanted to learn, and they were not even at first willing to pay him. They said, well, why are we going to pay you if you're just going to learn from us? I mean, you know, we're not going to pay you to teach you. Well, that's so an unpaid intern here. Well, right, for the first couple of months or so. And then he got paid $3 a week. Worked that way for a while. And then eventually he he got bumped up over as the years passed to $10 a week. So these were very humble 
circumstances. Humble beginnings for a vast empire. He got the idea because he was he was watching how the customers would eagerly rush in and go to the nickel table. There was a, a table where the leftover goods were sitting in the middle of the store. Well, and we the, all like bargains. And these were marked down and people would go straight to them. Not only were they bargains, Greg, but there was something else going on here. In this day, when you would go to a general store, you would present your list, your shopping list to the clerk behind the counter. The clerk would go off and buy, you know, your shaving powder and your but Collect sundries, the items, right? For collect you. them, bring them back, and then tell you how much they cost. Often you would haggle over the prices, you know, settle on some prices, and that's what you would pay. But there was a little give and take, and there wasn't that much choice, and whatever. I believe that's how it was on Little House on the Prairie when I watched it. <laughs> <laughs> that's I actually where I got all this information <laughs> for the podcast. So Frank got the idea that he wanted to start his own general store where it would be nothing but the nickel table. People could actually go up and interact with the merchandise on their own. You don't have to deal with a salesman for each item that you're buying, and you get to like play with the merchant, pick it up, look at it, shake it, and everything was only a nickel. So that was his grand idea in 1878. He borrowed $300 from his boss, started his first Woolworth store in Utica, New York, and it was a complete flop. Oh, really? And was the the five-cent table not large enough? Well, uh, you know, you joke about this, but there's something to that. Because then he turned around just one year later in 1879 and opened up another store in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and he added another table with 10-cent oh, items. you're kidding me. Oh, so I was, I was kind of right on it. So it was like, so we had varying prices. There were two prices, the nickel and the dime. So that store was actually a success. And that would be a five and dime. That would be a five and dime. So he brought his brother, Charles Sumner Woolworth, into the business, and they kept going, adding more and more stores. They started friendly alliances with other general stores so that they could buy more merchandise at cheaper prices. By 1886, they had seven stores. In 1895, they had 25 stores with sales over a million dollars for the first time. By 1909, Nine, getting up to right where we're at right now, where we are, he branches out into England, opening a chain of stores there. And two years later, so after he would start this construction project, he actually incorporated all of his stores, merged with affiliated stores, which brought his empire up to 596 stores. This was massive. But so, back in 1909, so he's got so many stores. He is seeing what these other major businessmen are doing in New York City. He obviously wanted a big, showy office. Right. In here he in wanted to say something about the state of his business, and he wanted to make a big impact on the cityscape. And so he decided to build... A really big building. But now, who was he going to get to build this? Thing? Well, I mean, he, luckily, he had a lot of money and influence by this time. So he was able to get the attention of a very well-known architect at the time. His name, and he is one of the greatest architects of this period, Cass Gilbert. Cass would go on to become the world's most famous architect. Probably the premier architect of the turn of the century. Wow. He was born... You know, Tom, he was... Tom, you're from Ohio. <clears throat> he was born in Zanesville, Ohio. Oh, sure, do you yeah. know where Zanesville is? I could show you on a map. Okay. Well, please do sometime. <laughs> <laughs> he studied at MIT and then took a tour of 
of all these European countries. And this is very, very important because what his style is, is the Beaux-Arts style. But he incorporates a lot of different eras, and he really is a master of this. He does it by going to each of these places, making sketches, and like becoming inspired himself from these original buildings that are over in Europe. In 1880, he returns to the United States and starts work at McKim, Mead & White, one of the, the biggest architectural firms at the time. He was actually Stanford White's assistant. He eventually develops his own firm and then makes a name for himself, at first not here, but in St. Paul, Minnesota. Comes back to New York in 1899 and starts to do a string of buildings and really makes his reputation. Did you know, Tom, that he built the Custom House at Bowling Green, uh-huh. also known as the Alexander Hamilton Custom House? A great building, and today the Museum of the Native American. Correct, a, a really good museum. But you, as you can tell from that building, that is neoclassicism to the extreme, absolutely. So he's perfect for Woolworth. Here's a quote from him that I think really typifies what he does with his style. I have always felt that architecture, painting, and sculpture were so closely akin that the highest form of art would be a combination of them all. So this a triumph of like Greek, Roman, Italian styles. But with Woolworth, interestingly, he wouldn't go with this old school classic styles, these big Roman forum looking buildings. Um, he would turn instead, because he needed to think about a skyscraper, and we hadn't yet come to the modern ideals of skyscrapers that many architects would do later, he wanted to express verticality. And so by doing that, he turned instead to neo-Gothic themes, to the ideas of no- Notre Dame cathedrals, just the Gothic style that had been floating through Europe for hundreds of years. So, and this is like a relatively late addition to the Gothic world, to be quite honest. I mean, Gothic architecture hasn't exactly sprung back into our culture, let's just say, in the 20th century. This is probably one of the last really, truly classic Gothic buildings. So armed with this style, Cast designs the building, and they start work on it. And we should also note that our friend Frank had his eyes set uptown. He was aware of that metropolitan life insurance building, oh, sure. and he mm-hmm. wanted to beat it. So he didn't just want to build himself a big headquarters. He also wanted to beat that building. Specifically, he, he had a competition in mind. Right. So in 1910, he bought up the lots between Barclay Street and Park Place, just across from City Hall. Ended up buying up that entire block, and he proposed building a 45-story skyscraper that would be come in at 625 feet plus a bit more for a tower. But you'll notice that it was built, you know, we talk later like with the Chrysler building about the setback laws, mm-hmm. and there were not setback laws. It, there weren't the kind of restrictions that there were just a few years later. Because if you'll notice that with the Woolworth building, it, the design has really the front of the building thrust straight up against the sidewalk, and it goes straight up into the sky. It could have conceivably just kept going. The projected budget for that uh, skyscraper was Five million dollars. In order to build this thing, they had to sink caissons. Remember the pressurized oh, caissons sure. down deep into the bedrock, down to find the bedrock deep under the ground in Manhattan, because this thing was going to be massive and it couldn't shift. I mean, it had to sit there. However, once those caissons were actually dug, which is a major pain, right? Woolworth decides that his building still is not tall enough because he had to beat that MetLife tower. 
So he decides to increase the size of his proposed building up to 792 feet. So while it's actually already being built. The caissons had already been sunk and built the whole thing. My goodness. So he made them go back down. They had to go back down, dig deeper, (laughs) because this was going to add additional weight. (laughs) Sorry, guys. And do you know why they did this and why they were willing to, you know, bow to his every demand was because this man was paying for his skyscraper in cold cash. So, I mean, he had like like wads of cash, like like Mr. <laughs> Magoo, like it was like stacks of gold coins or, or rolls of dollar bills. Listen, he was paying... <laughs> He was paying for this entire structure himself, not on credit, and not with the help of developers or speculators. Well, that's amazing. Highly unusual. Well, that's that means still you, unusual today. Well, I mean, that just means you've got control of everything because it's, right. it's coming straight from you, and you don't owe anybody anything. He could do whatever he liked. So, in the end, Woolworth's five million dollar skyscraper would clock in at thirteen and a half million dollars. Just uh, you know, taller and a lot more expensive, right out of his pocket. And would be the tallest building in the world except for the Eiffel Tower. And on April 24th, 1913, President Woodrow Wilson in Washington, D.C. famously flipped a switch or pushed a button and instantly all of the exterior and interior lights of the Woolworth building went on. From D.C.? From D.C. How do you like that? Everyone looked up at this lit building, some of the kind of amazing things that they saw. I mean, what made this building so unusual other than its height? I mean, that was one thing, and it might have been able to have just rested on those laurels. But in fact, Gilbert had had incredible attention to detail with this building. You know, it has this pyramid cap on top, as you know, this cream-colored terracotta. In fact, it has 2,400 tons of terracotta, supposedly. That's a lot of terracotta. I don't think I've ever thought about, even thought about that much terracotta in my life. A different floors outside of the building. There's all these strange little carvings, these sculptured heads and animals. I think on, you can actually see from the street these representations of Europe, Asia, Africa, and the Americas, like all these different faces along the side of it. But on different floors, it's just, there are little carvings of owls, pelicans, frogs, bats. Well, dare I say a little bit like gargoyles and you know hanging off the side of a gothic cathedral it's exactly what it is but his own little style it wasn't a church it was a modern secular building so thus he played these little fun little games with the building which i find really interesting when you see some of these pictures inside this unbelievable lavish lobby yeah i I didn't get in well i mean it's unfortunately it's just i wish we could all see it today i mean you like you can see it in pictures and if you have special passes on special days this is gold vein marble from greece there are these little busts on the side that are little caricatures of Woolworth himself, of Gilbert, and of of many other men who make the building. And guess, you won't believe this, Woolworth's caricature, his little bust, is him counting coins. Counting, no doubt, his nickels and dimes. And Gilbert's little caricature is of him holding a small Woolworth building. Wow, I wonder if there's a small Gilbert inside (laughs) of it. And it just goes on forever. Um, so the inter- yeah, the interior itself is extremely very church-like and wonderful. Wilbur's had an- he did have an office on the twenty-fourth floor. What I find amazing though is that he only took up two floors in his own building. <laughs> he just rented the rest of it out. That is incredible. What I find even more incredible is that he had this whole Napoleonic issue. 
Do you know about that? No. He was obsessed with Napoleon. He had some artifacts from Napoleon. I think he greatly admired the rulers slash dictators. It makes sense that he would, it his... makes sense that he would have a building that has a sort of French Gothic style to it, doesn't it? So yes, you could say he literally had a Napoleonic complex. <laughs> And this was his complex. Yes. Well, it had a. Um, it was the very first office building to ever have its own power plant. Wow. Um, it actually had four generators that create enough energy for fifty thousand people. If wow. fifty thousand people happened to, to be in the building, the elevators at the time were the fastest of anywhere in the world. There were the, actually these air cushions at the bottom of the shafts for a little extra safety. Believe it or not, at the top of the building there was an observation deck until the 1940s. Wouldn't that have been awesome? It's like the financial district to see it from that view. You can imagine the locals' reaction just watching this building go up, really, literally watching the skyscraper race from the sidewalk. It must have been really captivating, and it just wouldn't have been really beautiful with. The uh, city hall there and the old post office building there, and and the building was a success, right? I mean, it, it was a success for well, cast. Th- well, as this well made as yeah, forward. this totally made him a superstar on the national scene. I mean, this he reached a whole new level with this. He went on to design dozens of buildings, um, most notably for New York. Right up in Madison Square Park, he designed the New York Life Building in 1925. That is that beautiful gold-coned building. Of course, that's right next to... The Metropolitan Life Tower. Yeah, isn't that funny? They're right next to each other. He also built the U.S. Courthouse in Foley Square, which they have now called the Thurgood Marshall Courthouse. But his best-known and final building that is not in New York, it's the Supreme Court Building. The Supreme Supreme Court Building in Washington, D.C. was actually... He and his son built that. He died during the process of wow. making it. I mean, so that if that if that doesn't underscore what an important architect he was at this time, I don't know what else does. But the reviews he got for the Woolworth building were pretty spectacular, weren't they? Well, two years after it was completed, in fact, the Panama Pacific Exposition awarded the building a gold medal as the, quote, most beautiful building in all the world erected to commerce. Wow. Which is, you know, it's a... That's a very specific award. <laughs> Well, I think that just means the most beautiful non-religious or governmental right, building. Right, right, right. Okay. Well, it was even called the Cathedral of Commerce, but then it was a, it had been coined that in a speech during the opening of the building. Correct? The opening ceremony. The Reverend S. Parks Cadman coined that phrase. It seems like a slogan that stuck. Which seemed relevant because it looked in many ways like a cathedral and the inside had these, you know, religious touches. And it was, of course, dedicated by the big titan of commerce um, and renting out spaces. So he was even making money on his cathedral. But Cass didn't actually like that that nickname because he, to himself, he thought his influences to that building were actually a lot of secular buildings in Europe that he had sketched and saw and that he admired. So, I mean, but I don't know how I can complain. Yeah, I don't really know if I buy that because if you think about it it's laid out like a cathedral right the lobby is even in a cross like it has gothic flourishes on the facade it has gargoyles it's got colored glass arch ceilings it's got murals I mean give me a break well he just he never felt comfortable with that nickname so I mentioned that Woolworth only took up to himself and his employees two floors of his own building right. but he actually had a 100 other different tenants throughout the building uh, Fordham University for instance would occupy many floors of the Woolworth over the years did you know 
Columbia Records actually had a recording studio here, and then a couple other recording studios were also built in in the Woolworth Building. I find that kind of fascinating. That's cool, yeah. So, like I said, this was the tallest building until 1930, and on that day, it was actually usurped by two buildings: 40 Wall Street, and of course the Chrysler Building. And the, and they had their own little shortly thereafter, right? They had their own little battle of uh, of the wills of trying to become the tallest building. By that time, of course, New York had really become the quote skyscraper. Skyscraper City. Woolworth Building really sealed the deal for skyscrapers becoming a success in the city, and so they sprung up all over the place. There were a few copycat Gothic styles. It wasn't the, the style of the building that really influenced things, because right around the corner was Art Deco, and of course right around the corner from that was Modernism. Speaking of upscale establishments, whatever happened to um, Woolworths? Well, Greg? Frank died in 1919. His retail chain became a leader in the in America for decades and decades. It even started a five and dime craze, and they're all little uh, uh, full of copycats all over the place. Small towns everywhere. You know, um, he popularized the lunch counters. I, I think they might have had some problems in the '60s. In fact, with some Woolworth lunch counters in the South, and so, yeah. in the South and civil rights movement. But but still, by 1979, it was considered the largest department store chain in the world. However, that was sort of like the tipping. point. Point because it's beginning to slope off considerably in the 80s. It was still around in the 90s. I mean, I moved here in the 90s. I kind of remember the store. It was sort of a sorry lot, wouldn't you say? When I moved here in 1993, the second day I was in New York City, I went to a Woolworth store to buy a fan. But it shut down, I think, in the big phase out. Yeah, well, they they um, reorganized under this other name called the Venator Group. They ended up selling most of their stores, believe it or not, to Walmart. But here's, like, it takes this interesting twist because a, part of the Woolworth franchise begins to focus on sportswear. And it's rebranded under under a different name, under the Woolworth brand. And it's so successful that eventually in 2001, they just throw away the word Woolworths altogether because it really no longer has any value and they changed their name to the name of the sportswear store. So did you know that Woolworths is now the Foot Locker? (laughs) That is true. The Foot Locker is the remnants of Woolworths today. So if you go to a a Foot Locker, that is... um, It's It's the same business? Yes. In 1998, Venator sold the Woolworth building for $155 million to another company. And I guess, thank God, or else we might be calling it the Foot Locker Tower. It just paints such a radically different image. <laughs> I, it's hard. It's, I find it hard to believe that like, we end our story here on the Foot Locker, but that's where we're at. Wow. So thank you for joining us on our uncompromising history. Of- you, you might even say, died in the wool history oh you've been been waiting for that i've met my back pocket for 30 minutes um as always you can check out our blog i want to have a lot of pictures this week because there are uh, this is a very photographed building you will have yes but will you also find a photo of that other building the other skyscraper with the little spindle. Oh yeah, I'll have I'll have all the other previous buildings, the, the Singer Building, I believe, yes, yeah, yes. and so all of those, see uh, some race. of those. So you can see the race kind of like coalescing into the Woolworth Building. That'll be on the blog BoweryBoysPodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, type in Bowery Boys, search for us. And if you're on iTunes, we'd love to have a little review if you don't mind. We've been extremely grateful to have a wonderful group of listeners. It's been so fun to meet you and and to see your faces on Facebook and get your emails. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. (laughs) 
as we climb the heights of Woolworth building history, as we climb the heights <laughs> Wait, of Woolworth, no. I laughed. Sorry. As we climb the heights of Woolworth, okay, of the Woolworth, of the Woolworth building history. <laughs> Woolworth, Woolworth, Woolworth. As we climb the height, as we as we get on top. <laughs> Why didn't I just say that to me? What's all that like? Okay. Woolworth, Woolworth. Woolworth. <laughs>